Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So the line between being blind and being able to see isn't always as clear as you might think it is. So I first got to know this when I was a chaplain during a summer during seminary at Riverside Hospital, and my supervisory chaplain, he was legally blind, but he still had some vision. So he described it to us, it was like for him, the middle of his field of vision were these random swirling colors, and then there was a lot of darkness around it, and then on one side in his peripheral vision, he had a little bit of vision of the world around him. So if you want to kind of imagine this, if you take one hand and put it to the side of your head and look forward, imagine that that hand is all that you can see. So he was legally blind, he had to walk with a cane, but still, with that little bit of vision, he could get a sense of what was going on around him. And he also had a really good sense of humor, and so he would use that little bit of vision to have fun with people and sometimes even to teach them a lesson. And the favorite lesson that he would teach was to cars, out in crosswalks, because it was really annoying, especially for somebody with a disability, to have a na- to navigate around those cars who pull out too far and stay in the middle of that crosswalk, and you have to walk around them. And so when he comes to a crosswalk and there's a car in it, he can see that it's there, but he pretends like he doesn't. And so he'll walk through the middle of that crosswalk with his cane leading him, tap, 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 and then eventually it comes to the car, right? And then boom, and then he acts really startled. And so what do you have to do? Well, he's blind. He's just got to keep hitting that car, tap, 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 and feeling his way around it and slowly looking very confused, walking around the bumper, tap, 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 with every few steps, hit it a little bit harder. And then finally he makes it around to the other side and walks, finishing to the other side of the street. And I, I love that because he gets to play the innocent blind man and then the driver of the car gets to be appropriately shamed. <laughs> And let's be honest, we all, I think, have these dual emotions when we hear that story, because on the one hand, it's that, that justice. Yes, you get him. And then you're like, oh, unless that's me. Because <laughs> sometimes we've been that car too, right? But here's why I tell that story, because in that story, it took a blind man to show someone who could see that they weren't really seeing what they needed to. Just because you're able to see doesn't mean you actually notice the things that you should be noticing, even if they're right in front of you. So Jesus does a lot of healing in the Gospels, and he heals several people that are blind. But usually when he heals someone, it is also pointing to something deeper that's going on than just the physical healing. Now I want to mention something before we get into that deeper something that's going on, because sometimes we're a little too quick to go to the symbolic and dismiss the healing itself. I mean, take an example, like if you think about the feeding of the thousands, where Jesus feeds all these thousands of people, you might say, well, that hunger can be a symbol. And there are people who are hungry for good news, and so they need spiritual nourishment. And that's true. And there are also people who are just plain hungry. And if you tell somebody who is physically hungry, well, don't worry, there's this good news of Jesus, and they still don't have any food on their table, well, then it doesn't feel like very good news. And so we get to the symbolic, but we don't want to ignore the actual physical needs that people have. That is a part of being a follower of Jesus. So when you look at these stories, though, Jesus heals someone, there is 
also, there's that physical need, and there's something deeper that's being addressed. So our reading today is Jesus and Bartimaeus, this blind man who Jesus restores his sight. But when you look at it in context of the stories that come right before it, what we're actually seeing is that it's the disciples who are really blind. It's the disciples who keep failing to see the things that are right in front of them. So our reading has these three scenes, and Mark puts them all together because they're connected. And here's how it starts with this first scene. And all these images are from the cartoonist Bible. It's this Pastor Steve Thomason who does a great job of capturing uh, what the text actually says and making these cartoon scenes. So Jesus says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has told them this, that this is where they're headed, a, a passion prediction is what we call it. So back in chapter eight of Mark, that's where the first time happens, and that time, Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter says, oh, Jesus, don't worry about it. No, 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 you don't have to die. We'll take care of it. And you know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. So they're not too anxious to speak out the next two times, but clearly this first time they don't get it. So that's chapter eight. Then in chapter nine, which was our reading for Ash Wednesday, if you were here for that, Jesus tells them again, I'm going to die, I'm gonna rise again, and that's where all this is headed. And that time, the text tells us that they didn't understand and they were too afraid to ask him. They just didn't wanna address it, didn't wanna mess with it. And instead, what happens right after that is Jesus catches them arguing about which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> so Jesus is telling them, okay, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The Messiah is giving you this example of service, of servant love, of taking your place as the last and the least. It's about sacrifice, like this ultimate act of sacrificing my life for many. Okay, do you get it? And the disciples respond by arguing about which one of them is the best. <laughs> Clearly, they're not seeing it yet. And so the third time, Jesus starts like this. And look at the first word. He says, see. Will you open your eyes? Look at what I'm trying to show you. Do you see what the kingdom of God is like? And just in case you might think that the disciples are learning, Mark shows us that they still remain totally clueless. So here's the, how they respond this time. There are these brothers, James and John, and immediately after this, they come up to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Hey, we have a little favor. Will you do something for us? And can't you just picture Jesus like, really? Really, you, you still don't get it? Well, let's see, let's see. What do you want, he says, what do you want for me to do? And then here's what they say. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Like Jesus, remember when you were on the mountain and you were like shining and there was Moses and Elijah right next to you? Can we be Moses and Elijah? Like whenever you stop slumming with the poor and all that stuff and you just take your seat on the throne, can we be next to you and get some glory and power, please? So again... Jesus is talking about sacrifice. He's talking about service. And they're like, we want some good stuff for us. Totally missing 
the point. And it's not just the two of them. Mark tells us that the other 10 disciples were also there and they were all angry. Now, why are they angry? Because James and John don't get it, but they get it? No, they're angry because they don't want these two to be in the seat of glory and honor. They want to have that seat for themselves, so they're angry about it. So Jesus tells them this. You know that among the Gentiles in the world around us, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It does not work out well in the world when people act like this, climbing over one another to get a seat at the top. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Then he finishes by saying, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is not speaking in riddles here and being vague. No, he's being pretty straightforward. This is what it looks like to be the Messiah and to follow me, and they just don't get it. Now, you see this theme, especially in the Gospel of Mark. For whatever reason, Mark really wants to make this clear to all of his readers that the original disciples were not these perfect heroes of the faith. We often think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they didn't understand. Well, yeah, but that's not it. In Mark's gospel, it's also the closest followers of Jesus who again and again do not get it. And think of what a privileged position they had. I mean, they spent the most time of anybody with Jesus. They got to hear all of his teaching firsthand and not just the crowd stuff. There were things like this scene where Jesus is teaching just them. If anyone should understand, it should be the disciples. If anyone has learned by now, it should be them. By the way, that's what a disciple means. It means a learner. A disciple is a student, someone who is learning. And after all this time following Jesus around, clearly the disciples still have a lot left to learn which I think is a great reminder for all of us that we all have a lot left to learn. We all need to remember to stay humble and curious and also to be wary of those Christian voices that are too confident. The people that say, oh, we know exactly what it's all about. Yeah, I don't think so we're called to be disciples, always learning. And if the original 12 who spent three years with the actual person of Jesus are usually clueless, how arrogant would it be for us to think that we've got Jesus all figured out, to think that we've got nothing left to learn? So Mark shows us these scenes of the disciples being blind and clueless, and here's how he finishes it. He ties it all together with this scene. And it starts with this line, they came to Jericho. Now this is one of the parts that I love, I love about studying the Bible. Because normally if you were just reading this, you would pass by it. Like whatever, Jericho, it doesn't matter. It's just something to keep the story moving. But as you dig into this, there are always more and more layers going on here. So Jericho, do you remember where Jericho first appears in the Bible? Maybe you remember the song. Can anyone, the choir sang it last service. Can we sing it? 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Come on, Jericho. Don't make me do it again, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And now you can all join the choir before the 4A Requiem in a couple weeks, okay? You're all qualified. Exactly, it was Joshua. I have to make fun of you because you make fun of Joshua. The choir did not sing that in the first service. They sing, Jesus is a rock in the weary land, which is a different song. No, they sang that when I did it during the sermon. You weren't there here. You left. Uh-huh, yeah, that's right. We're not above petty disagreements here at Peace Lutheran Church. Where were we? <laughs> I don't know. Jericho. Okay, Joshua. All right, so Joshua was going into Jericho, enemy territory. Now, I know this sounds like a weird question, but do you know what was the name of Jesus? It's not Jesus. It's not how you actually pronounce it. See, Jesus, that pronunciation, we get it from Greek because it was Greek translation from his Hebrew or Aramaic name. That's why we pronounce it like that. But no, Jesus, he and his disciples, they all spoke Aramaic, which comes from Hebrew. And so if we were to pronounce his actual name, it would be Yeshua. If we pronounced it from Aramaic instead of from the Greek translation, we would pronounce it Joshua because that was his name. Now I have to admit, we're probably not gonna change it at this point. I think it'd be kind of fun though to be the first church of Josh the Christ right here in Gehenna. But we'll probably stick with Jesus, but that was his actual name, Joshua. Okay, so we're told that Yeshua comes here to Jericho. This is a second Joshua coming here to fight another battle. So you get this sense that there is some other tension going on here. There's this tension between the Messiah, the Jesus movement, and then the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. And how is this battle going to play out? Now, do you remember how the first Joshua won the battle of Jericho? Does anyone remember? He walked around the city. That's all. It wasn't like Joshua won because he was this great military leader and he had the best army and he had the best use of technology and he defeated their fortifications. No, God was like, this isn't about you. This isn't about you being so great. So all I want you to do is march around the city a few times and I will bring the walls down. That way, no one can mistake your power for my power because that's what it's actually about. So here Jesus is with his disciples these leaders who would become these leaders in the early church. And Mark is telling us yet again, remember people, it is not about them. This didn't all happen because they are so great. No, only God can bring about God's kingdom. And sometimes it happens in spite of the blind fools that God has to work with. So let's see what happens. They're here at Jericho and this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, comes up and says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus responds, what is it that you want me to do for you? Now this might sound familiar. This is the same pattern of the last conversation with the disciples. They say, Jesus, we want you to do something for me. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do something for me. And Jesus says the same thing. What is it you want me to do? Now the disciples, what do they want? Give us some glory. Give us some power. We want to have this seat of privilege. 
And what does Bartimaeus said? He says, God, I'm blind. Help me to see. My teacher, I'm blind. Help me to see again. He's the one, even though he's blind, that really sees what he needs. And so Jesus gives it to him. He says, okay, go. Your faith has made you well. And then Mark tells us that Bartimaeus, who can now see, he doesn't go home. No, he goes with them, continues on the way to Jerusalem. I'm sure with a face just like that, don't you think? Yay, I can see. He gets it, even though the disciples don't. It's like if you truly want to see who Jesus is, we have to start by admitting that we are all blind, that we don't get it. None of us have it all figured out. We all come with all sorts of assumptions about what the world is like, about what God is like, and about what our neighbors are like. And often those assumptions need to be challenged, and often they need to be changed. The kingdom of God is alive and well in the world around us, not because Christians are so great, but because God can work even through blind fools like us. So maybe the prayer that we really need to carry with us is something like, God, we are blind. That's where we start. God, we are blind. Take me by the hand and lead me where we need to go. So let's pray that. God, we are blind. Take us by the hand and lead us where we need to go. One more time. God, we are blind. Take us by the hand and lead us where we need to go. Amen.